Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining another casework stream. The topic of today's stream is infant formula, and unfortunately, the scary topic of necrotizing enterocolitis. We are joined today, and I'm super thrilled to have two outstanding attorneys um, really to spend time with us and give us their thoughts about the litigation. Um, they, we have both Amelia Frankel and Seth Meyer from Keller Linkner joining us today. And um, just, again, really appreciate both of you for hopping on and, and spending time with Dan. And, and also Dan Kamenali is, is our VP of Sales. And so the two of us are going to talk to you guys and, and hopefully this information will be valuable and we can disseminate it out to other firms that are looking to invest and acquire um, these net cases. So what I thought we would do is just kind of start off by a brief introduction, and if you guys will tell us a little bit about yourself and about your background um, and the practice of Keller and Linkner. And, and Amelia, why don't you start us off? Sure, absolutely. So first of all, thank you for having us today. It's great to be here talking with you and to be able to talk about these uh, cases. So I joined Keller Linkner just uh, about a year ago. Uh, I think three days ago was my one year anniversary. And, um, you know, these cases were the very first thing that I got on my very first day to kind of look at. Um, and obviously the litigation has really taken off since that point. So um, it's, it's really fantastic to be working on them and to be talking about them here with you guys today. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback off that. Um, thank you again, uh, Susan and Dan. E excited to be here with both of you. Um, having worked with you so much, um, it's a fun platform uh, to continue the conversation. Um, I uh, joined KL. It's been uh, about four years now. Um, we'll be in a month or so. Uh, so I was one of the, the first to come over uh, when we formed the firm. Um, I think I was the first to come over when we formed the firm. Um, background on the defense side and uh, have worked on a, a, a lot of our uh, litigation that's been interesting from the mass arb side to the uh, mass sport and class action side but um, excited to be involved in this case um, uh, it's a it, it's certainly a, a, a case with some tragic consequences and one that KL is proud to be out front of yeah yeah well fantastic why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, how did the product liability come to be on the forefront of the litigation? Yeah, so when we started to look at these cases, I mean, something that really struck us is this is a pattern that you see repeated over and over and over again. You have a baby, a preterm baby who is doing well, who gets that formula or fortifier, and all of a sudden is set on a different and, and really tragic trajectory. And that was happening across hospitals, across doctors. And so to us, it seemed like this is, this really is a products case and a products problem. The oldest study, you know, Amelia, we were, you know, as getting into this um, litigation, just doing some research um, for our team. And, and one of the oldest studies we found related to this case was um, from the UK back in the 90s. And the study determined that the, you know, neck was 10 times more common in premature babies who were given formula. So as far as existing plaintiffs go, how, how far back do you see like the timelines, um, you know, We'll just stop there and see, you know, if you can give us a little bit of background on the timeline. Sure, I'll, I'll take this one, Susan. Yeah. I, I think um, that 1990 study is a critical inflection point in the, in the trajectory of the, of the litigation. I think the reason is 
um, without a doubt, the, the company should have known, at least from that study on, that they had no business um, recommending or, or even allowing um, their cow's milk-based for, formulas and fortifiers uh, to be provided to preemies. And so I think that the critical juncture, um, like in any product's cases, is, is when they should have known. And I think that's a, a key line in the sand. Now, we're not suggesting that that is the only piece. And I think um, our investigation has, has indicated that there was some knowledge out there in the marketplace about the danger of cow's milk-based for, uh, formulas and fortifiers before 1990. But based on the size and scope and prominence of this particular study, it's pretty inexcusable, frankly, um, that the manufacturers allow that to continue beyond that point. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and you know, Seth and Amelia, one, one thing, obviously, when you, when you hear the word, you know, preemie or premature, stuff like that, it's a very tenuous time that families have to deal with this in, in general, something like that. Is there any idea of, you know, the size and the scope of how many families might be, you know, affected by this, you know, during that time period? Yeah, so it's unfortunately a, a tragically large number. I mean, in sort of the grand scheme of things, it's not huge, but the estimates are that this affects up to 9,000 families a year, um, up to 9,000 wow. infants. And so that is substantial. Now, not all of those infants have the same level of injury. Um, of those, uh, somewhere around half end up having to have, you know, sort of serious interventionist surgery as opposed to, you know, sort of treatment with antibiotics and other things. Um, and about half of those uh, don't don't make it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's terrible. That's a that's a large number. And then I know that you know firms, they're the criteria of you know acquiring cases is going to be different from firm to firm but you know as of right now and where things stand what is keller linkner's case criteria on the types of cases that they're accepting sure so i mean the first key criteria is the infant does need to be premature um, and the way that line is drawn is at 37 weeks gestation. So before that point, an infant is considered premature. Uh, the second criteria is that the infant received a cow's milk-based formula or fortifier before their diagnosis. Um, one of the really incredible things is there are now out there on the market and have been for some, quite some time um, products that are made with human milk that are designed to meet the nutritional needs of these babies. Um, safely without that increased risk of neck. Um, those are not unfortunately commonly given. So we are finding that most infants who did receive formula at that very young age were getting sort of your cow's milk brace products, your Similac or Enfamil. Um, and then we're requiring, uh, you know, generally a neck diagnosis or um, other verification that you know it does seem like this this was an infant who got neck even if they don't uh, precisely remember what that diagnosis was let me just expand a little bit on the on the first one in the preemie piece i think it's important um because it speaks to um the defendant controlling culpability in this particular circumstance we're not suggesting that these products are dangerous to all infants um in fact um, they're, you know, based on what we've seen thus far, the lion's share of infants, those are, that are not born prematurely, you know, tolerate these well. And I think making it all the more concerning that these companies continued um, 
to uh, suggest that they were safe to be provided to preemie infants. And so it's really only a, a small subset of infants that are born that would have a, a, a real problem. And, and as the studies indicate, uh, a demonstrably worse time um, when, when provided those products. And how far back, I mean, you know, for those um, preemies that were diagnosed with neck, how far back are you taking cases? Right now, we're, we're drawing the line at that 1990 study. Um, but that said, I mean, I think we, you know, like in any case, are going to continue doing our investigation and seeing what discovery reveals um, about what uh, the defendants knew or, or, or should have known um, in, in, over the past several decades. And so um, there are some folks who've, who've had this diagnosis before um, the 1990 deadline. I think that what we are trying to accomplish is, um, as I said, um, I drawing a line in the sand of where the defendant's knowledge of um, the inappropriateness of providing these products to preemies was. And so let me ask you this. I mean, I know what we're doing for, for firms that we're working up cases, but as far as obtaining the medical records to help substantiate, you know, one that they, you know, had this form, you know, took formula and then had the diagnosis. What are you guys doing from a medical record ordering perspective? What does the scope look like and, or, have we, you know, not begun ordering records yet? So that is a process that we are working through. Um, one thing to know is for these little babies, especially the ones that had the longer hospital stays, the medical records can run into the thousands or even mm -hmm. the tens of thousands of pages. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so there can be real cost issues associated with that, as well as issues with making sure that you have that complete record set. Um, and so one slice of the records that we believe is really important for these cases are called the flow sheets. Mm -hmm. And that's really where the nurses who are in the NICU write down, you know, on a very regular basis, sometimes to the hour, you know, this is what the infant was fed. This is how they reacted. This is how they were doing. Um, and so those are really, really crucial records. A lot of these hospitals we're finding do have them going some years back. Uh, but it can take some doing to get there. Absolutely. Sure. What is, what would you say is unique about this case in regards to the reported injuries or the injuries that we, you're thinking we can expect to see in the future? Yeah, I, I think one of the, one of the most obvious things, especially vis-a-vis -vis many of the other um, leading mass torts right now is just how um, definitive it's been among clients um, that we've communicated with thus far that they're infant um, suffered from this. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those diagnoses that uh, you know when it happens. And I think in terms of certainty of, of the folks that are uh, um, affected by it, it's, it's been pretty remarkable. Um, number two is just the gravity of the consequences. And we've talked about that already, but um, it, it, these are very, very severe and, and grave injuries. And, and, you know, I think Amelia noted uh, death is, is, is not uncommon. So very severe surgeries, neurological issues, and, and, and death. Um, so I, I think one, the the fact that you, you had it, you know, you know that you had it, or that it was it was the problem too, is just the significance of what happened as a result. Right. I think we. Yeah. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah. Have any of your, what's the quality of life for some of the you know infants that have sort of made you know your clients that have made it through and obviously fortunately survived? Have has there been any sort of information that you know chronicles that? Yeah, so 
you know, there are lasting consequences for those infants who, you know, had severe disease, who had their intestines removed, short bowel syndrome, um, you know, even in the absence of, of those removals, all kinds of gastrointestinal issues that, that persist um, through childhood and potentially beyond. One of the things that we have learned about that was um, I would not have known starting out this case is there can also be a lot of neurocognitive um, impairments that result from this disease. It is a super crucial time for brain development. And when you have all of that infection and inflammation and sepsis often comes along with this disease, there can be a big impact on the child's brain as well. Yeah. One of the, kind of going back to some of the research that, that we have done at CaseWorks and, and, and also listening to um, the great uh, webinar that you guys did for Harris Morton. I mean, that was just, you know, fantastic information and, and heard just such great feedback from attorneys. So I know everyone's really appreciative for the information that was um, presented on that webinar. But now that one of the first infant um, formula lawsuits was Ferry versus Mead um, there in Connecticut in this case ended up being voluntarily dismissed. So just curious about what does this mean and how does this impact the work that you're trying to do? So that was not one of our cases. Uh, so I can't speak to, you know, precisely the decisions that the attorneys in that case would have made. Um, in terms of how it has impacted our litigation and decision making, I think the answer would be that it has not. Um, our cases uh, are on file. We're on file in Illinois State Court. Um, we're moving forward uh, toward a first trial date of March 2023, um, and we are really, you know, optimistic about uh, keeping that date and doing everything that we can do to to, to get there. One thing we, you know, mentioning, what is the significance, uh, if any, of the, you know, the amount of lawsuits that are being filed in Illinois, which happens also to be the same state in which the defendant is based? If you could just sort of speak to the significance, if any, as to, you know, how that helps. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a case where um, we believe both defendants are at home. Uh, there is some litigation about that with regard to Mead Johnson. I think no question about it with regard to Abbott Labs. Um, but it has allowed us to, you know, sort of put the litigation where we think it can move forward in a way that, you know, we're able to move forward quickly. We don't have to wait for that federal MDL. We have filed a state motion for pretrial consolidation that is going to help us to you know move cases forward regardless of where they're filed in the state um, and move those forward on the same sort of timeline that we have already established which is a good timeline so kind of part and parcel with that you know i believe you are also seeking a statewide consolidation in, in the 30 separate lawsuits um, that were filed last you know uh, could you just speak to a little bit of sort of the you know the ideology there yeah, so we have, um, for the cases that we have filed down in Madison County, we have sort of an informal pretrial consolidation. Um, but the idea was there is this mechanism under Illinois state law, which does approximate sort of the federal MDL process and would allow us to formalize that not only for the cases in Madison County, but also for cases that have been filed elsewhere in the state. Um, so that all of those cases could come in and everyone could, you know, work together on that pretrial discovery and corporate discovery and, you know, get things done in an efficient and coordinated way. 
Yeah, and I just wanted to, to talk a little bit about um, the rationale there. I think Amelia noted noted a portion of it, and that's to pursue the most expeditious um, and fair resolution for the victims of um, these products um, who develop these symptoms. Um, we are pleased with uh, the timeline that we've been given. We think it's an aggressive timeline, but it's a, a timeline um, that is appropriate under the circumstances, and I think the the big challenge in many of these um, large uh, mass torts is is what is the most expeditious way to sort of hurt all of these together and and resolve them in a, a cogent and fair way. And I think this state procedure and the approach that we've taken as a procedural matter um, is appropriate um, and will lead to the quickest and best result uh, for our clients. You know, you've you've given us some great feedback about you know the history of the 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 tort and um, you know, the case criteria, and we talked a little bit about this earlier. That you know this is this is not just your run of the mill mass tort case. I mean, it's so sensitive and and the types of plaintiffs that we're trying to um, you know market to. As far as you know, if we talk a little bit about advertisement, um, how would you what would you think is best practice for advertising for plaintiffs when it comes to such a you know sensitive topic? I think I think you're you're spot on per usual, and I think that's why um, we've had such a positive time working together, Susan, um, over the years. Um, this is a remarkably sensitive issue, um, and that's not to discount many of the other mass torts are out there and and all of the consequences. But it's hard to imagine anything much worse than uh, the death or or severe injury to a child at that point. Um, so these are families that are grieving. These are families that have suffered the unimaginable. And I think the sensitivity um, is, is crucial, um, both in terms of just, just general compassion, but also understanding what, what they've been through um, from a medical standpoint, understanding um, what they experience at the hospital as they, as they recount these episodes. I think um, having that, that cognizance, having a well-trained staff that's able to deal with that um, in a professional way, but also a compassionate way is something that's, that's so important. As I noted, um, these are folks that, that generally know what happened. This is an extraordinarily engaged group of people, um, again, based on the gravity of what happened. But that needs to be met with the utmost in professionalism and knowledge and care and compassion yeah. on the attorney side. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and as the evolution of this tort and, and what you guys are, you know, following and, and, you know, just wondering what your thoughts are on this stage, what is, what is the Keller Linkner team really focused on? Yeah, I think um, there's a, there a number of different components um, at a relatively early um, juncture in the in the matter, but it, it's amazing how much we've developed this far in terms of uh, the factual investigative record, what we understand about what transpired um, by working to work with our clients, listening to our clients, and also conducting some investigation um, into the, the product um, and what uh, the literature and the experts have to say about it. But I think um, it's a few things. One, it's to understand the size and scope of the problem is, is, a, is a key component of that with an eye toward, again, that early resolution, um, but also to uh, streamline and hopefully resolve all of these early and procedural matters as quickly, as expeditiously as possible to, to get down the road toward actually resolving the merits of the case. I think that's something that is extraordinarily important to us as a firm um, to understand who this impacts. And that's something that we talk about on a daily basis is 
to understand the full population that's impacted by um, uh, these products um, and to be able to manage that in as, uh, as well a process as, as possible. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, problems and, and also combined with um, these plaintiffs typically are very engaged. So if we if we look at, um, and this isn't too dissimilar from, you know, other torts, and it's really tough if you're doing this on a mass level to keep people um, informed and engaged throughout the process. But what do you think as far as problems um, that you might encounter when it comes to managing these client expectations in such a widespread, you know, mass tort case? I mean, one of the things is what we have seen uh, from clients over and over again is oftentimes they haven't had the opportunity to really share with anyone what happened to their child and what happened to their family. And so in some sense, you know, you are helping them to process those events, which for some of these parents happened a while ago, but for some happened really, really recently. Um, and so there's a lot of emotion that comes with that either way. The other thing is, you know, once once a client has shared that with you, um, one thing that we are hearing is clients want to know, you know, not just what's happening in their case, but what's happening in the litigation, right? These people care about the outcome of their individual case for their family. But a lot of these parents are really, really highly motivated to make sure that this litigation and the facts of these cases get broader public attention so that families who are facing decisions about you know, what to give their premature infant today are able to make informed choices that can maybe save them some of the pain that their own family went through. Um, and so I think sort of that level of communication and recognizing that that's something that clients are looking for um, is a really, really important aspect of, of this litigation management. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think you've, you've answered kind of my next question just by, um, you know, just by some of the responses and how are you going to handle these types of cases? They're so sensitive. How do you deal with these families? But how would you say Keller Linkner is, is setting um, themselves aside apart from other firms? Yeah, I think we, from from the beginning, beside being one of the, the first in the space, just based on how serious it was and how important it was um, to bring this to light and, and to pursue vindication for these folks, um, building that process internally and with our partners, um, both firms and vendors that we work with has been a crucial component of um, what we've done um, over the past you know, year plus that we've been working on this case. I think um, being able to deal with each individual client in a mass tort is always important, but I'd underscore that a thousand times here based on the seriousness of of the injury, but also uh, based on the engagement of the in of the individuals along the way, and um, it's always frustrating to people how long it takes um, right. because these things are consolidated. It's not a matter of simply, uh, you know, bringing their case and filing it immediately, and 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 we'll see you in court the next day. And, and having them understand that process and how this works um, is a, is an integral component of how we handle it. But I think we have built a process that we're particularly proud of in terms of uh, a very knowledgeable um, and uh, caring staff that is approaching each client um, the best way possible, but also um, creating within the firm uh, a matter of um, pursuing the litigation aggressively and a, a really um, uh, 
engaged team internally that with every part of the the operation talking to one another about what we're hearing from the clients and what's going on in Madison County and ensuring that we're doing everything we can to maximize value of these cases and also um, to, 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 to handle it as professionally as possible. Hey, Seth and Amelia, what, what would be the best way, you know, I was recently, in, and we both were actually recently in uh, at National Trial Lawyer Summit in Miami. Um, you know, there's a lot of firms there that, you know, have a couple of these cases. They're not really big into mass torts. They're primarily a personal injury. What would be the best way for a lot of these firms that, you know, want to refer the cases because, you know, they're not quite equipped to handle it like your firm is? What would be the best way for them to get in touch with y'all? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, for lack for lack of a better answer, uh, you know, email me, call me. I'm, I, we're, we're extraordinarily receptive. We we like to, to chat with people who are out there. I mean, we recognize that so many of these injuries are brought to that sort of first line um, at, a, at a single event or a personal injury shop. Um, and so that's not an uncommon situation. Um, but you're right, uh, Dan, this is, this is not, this is a, a bit of an unusual case um, for a PI shop and, and to be able to understand uh, all these competing dynamics and all these challenges is, is critical. So, uh, you know, my, my phone is, is always available. My, my inbox is always open and I'm, I'm more than happy as, as I know you all are to, to chat with folks about how to, how to address this um, besides being, you know, what, what we do for a living. This, these, are, these are critical issues that matter a, a great deal to us and ensuring that this litigation is, is dealt with in the best way possible is, is what we're both committed to and we spend you know, most of our waking hours on. And so uh, I'm happy to chat with anyone who's dealing with those issues, um, whether it's, uh, you know, ultimately working with us or working with another of the, the, the many law firms that are out there handling this. I think um, in a way we're, we're all in this together in terms of pursuing justice and, and, and a, uh, appropriate results uh, for, the, for the injured here. And um, to the extent we can collaborate on that, I'd love to do it. Okay, and, and last question. This has been fantastic, um, as always, great information. But I'm always interested to hear from the attorneys that we talk with is, you know, <laughs> what has been your most fulfilling case to date? And I've, you know, it's been really interesting to hear about those cases. So, Amelia, what's been your uh, most fulfilling case and the one that you'll always remember? <laughs> I mean, I think it's going to be this one. I, I can't lie about that. I really do. I really do. Yeah. For sure, it's going to touch a lot of people's lives. For sure, I'd, I'd be remiss if I just repeated what Amelia said, even though I'm obviously <laughs> extraordinarily passionate about about this particular case. But um, Kale's been very active in the opioid litigation, and I think it is the the, the biggest litigation in American history, um, and probably will be for some time. So, just solving a problem of that size and scope, um, I think I read today that another million people are expected to die in the coming years um, from, from the consequences of opioid addiction. So um, uh, being able to play our small part in, in addressing that, that case and doing it through litigation and consolidated litigation and all the lessons learned along the way um, yeah. is a close second to neck. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you both for taking time to spend uh, Friday afternoon with Dan and I and talking about um, this, this litigation. And um, we, we very much appreciate your time and, and excited and to share this with, the, with other attorneys that we're working with. And um, for those that are listening, uh, like Dan mentioned, if they have cases that they're you know, wondering about what are they going to do with in the future, either reach out to Amelia or, or Seth um, directly, or we're happy to, to introduce you guys. But again, thanks so much for taking time um, to connect with us on this topic. Thanks for having us on, Susan yeah. and Dan. We obviously love working with y'all, but um, 
it, it, it's been a, it's been a pleasure to um, to spend time here today and and look forward to working together more in the future. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.